Why, hello. Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's good to have you here for this episode. And it's summertime, and living is easy, as they say, although easier in some places than in others. It's real easy for me, but uh, maybe Tom has something else to say about where he is. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. I've written a number of things. been a professor of philosophy and home improvement contractor and a commercial real estate investor, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, enough about me. Okay, how about over to you, Tom? Tom Price, it is very warm here in Connecticut. It's not as bad as it could be, but it is bad per se, enough for people in Connecticut to have their AC on and everything else. Um, you know, it's a humid state. Most people think of New England as kind of just, you know, a cool kind of borderline snow. But you know what? We get very warm. It, uh, <laughs> yeah, there are four seasons. One of those seasons is yeah. summer. <laughs> yeah, and, and summer is real. I grew up in the South, so there is familiarity with this kind of temperature. And I, it doesn't bother me. I'm okay with it. Um, yeah, I'm writing things, uh, many things, uh, on a variety of topics. Actually, the variety increases as the day progresses, but that's a good thing, and I teach as well. Um, but I'll pass it over to uh, Dr. Sunshine. <laughs> yeah, Glenn, tell us about yourself then, uh, subject of the day. Yeah, I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, a ministry associate at Reflections Ministries. Um, I've got a uh, 501c3 called Every Scranch Ministries. I'm a retired history professor. I'm writing and doing a whole bunch of other stuff, too. So <laughs> um, anyway, um, our topic for the day is coming out of an article that I ran into uh, called The Shattered Image um, of the 13th Century. And the jumping off point for this, he talks about C.S. Lewis's discarded image. And he says that, you know, the, the discarded image is a brilliant work of scholarship, and it really is. Yeah. Um, it's a work that I would strongly recommend anybody listening to this uh, to read. Um, just be aware that Lewis is a professor of literature. When he presented this, was presenting it to a bunch of literature students. So he makes all kinds of references to works of literature that you probably don't know. Yeah. And that's okay. You can still yeah. get his point. And he's, ver and he's versed in philosophy enough to basically lose a lot of people who are even well-versed in philosophy. He's just that kind of scholar. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But uh, The Discarded Image is a great book, strongly recommended. But, but the author of this article suggests that actually a slightly different metaphor should be used here. Now, when Lewis talks about image, what he's really talking about is medieval worldview the image that they had, the picture they had of the cosmos and how it worked. And we should probably do an episode on the discarded image sometime. Yeah. I think that would really yeah. be worthwhile. Absolutely. But, uh, but for today, um, he suggests that really what we're living with is not so much an image that's been discarded, but an image that's been shattered. And the trick is that the modern world picks up pieces of that shattered image yeah. from the 13th century and sort of pieces it together to create what, what we have today. The problem is it's incoherent. Yeah, In the 13th yeah. century, everything hung together. It was all a, a unified whole, but by shattering it and just picking up little bits and pieces, we have uh, been left with a, well, let's call it a disintegrated uh, way of looking at the world and, and worldview. And to make his point, he's going to go through a bunch of individuals, and we'll see how many of them we actually get to. But, yeah, Tom. Glenn, it's just worth pointing out that a lot of the work in Reformation scholarship, and, you know, a lot of our audience is Reformed people. So it's important to note here that this is a fragmentation that the Reformation was always, we're already in the middle of trying to address. So this shattering had already kind of taken place, and the Reformation is trying to run with a core thread of it. Um, and that's why sometimes people think of the Reformation as, as embracing that shattering when they actually were not. They were actually trying to retrieve something that was at the heart of what had broken down and they didn't want to lose it. Um, but I think that's worth noting because I think a lot of times people read, you know, you have two schools. You have the Reformation as, as thinking it's, it sort of carries on uh, the full picture, which is not true. Um, but you have the flip side that Reformation 
broke things worse. And I think both of those are, are erroneous readings of this. Uh, the Reformation had to deal with this fragmentation. Yeah, yeah I think- and in fact, the author really uh, pinpoints the Black Death, one of my personal favorite topics, uh, as uh, a significant part of the reason why it fragmented. Um, mm. The Italian Renaissance... If the Ital- if the thinkers in the Italian Renaissance hadn't been so presentist in their own yeah. day, uh, yeah. or maybe antiquarian, I'm not sure which it is, um, and had gone back to the Middle Ages, they'd have avoided a lot of the mistakes that they ended up making. Yeah, I think you that know, they. But that, yeah, there's a yeah. Te- there's a tendency to underestimate the level of thought and scholarship that was present before the Black Death. I think, you know, this is John Mark Reynolds, so in case folks are unfamiliar with him, John Mark Reynolds was um, the founder of the um, uh, a program at Biola University for, uh, let me think, it was, it, was a, it was basically for, well, I think it's the Tory Scholars, if I remember right, the name of the program, mm-hmm. but it was a special program in, in sort of the Western tradition, kind of a great books thing that um, was uh, really, you know, a fine thing. Yeah, um, let me see. He uh, let's see. Uh, mentions it at the, at the Great Book Center Honors Program. It was an honors program. And, uh, but anyway, um, I think another facet, you know, when I was a young Christian and we would talk about the Reformation, which wasn't very often, um, you know, I was in a, kind of mainstream American evangelical church, which more or less assumed that the Reformation was simply a recovery of a pure gospel from the past, that there wasn't anything else that was going on sort of in the larger picture that was at all important. Um, When you get into the actual history of things, you discover that it was a much more interesting and complicated story than that. <laughs> Although, you know, I do think that there were obviously important features of the gospel that had been obscured during, uh, you know, uh, the period in which we were trusting the, the Roman Catholic Church to be the, a good steward of the gospel, and, and they failed in certain ways. But I think uh, this 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 notion of an image that's shattered is a good one because uh, for 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 a range of reasons. One is is that our time is thoroughly inconsistent. So you'll have people who, uh, you know, are materialistic in their understanding of reality, uh, you know, and then they will, in, 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 you know, inconsistently insert values and convictions that can't be derived from materialism. This is a good problem. I mean, I'm not saying that they should be thoroughly consistent because if they were thoroughly consistent, (laughs) it would be just horrendous. (laughs) I mean, uh, on the side of materialism, because materialism doesn't give you any basis for morality um, or or beauty or anything else like that. Uh, So, you know, like I I like to make fun of Carl Sagan whenever I can. And he's a good thing. Yeah. (laughs) He's famous for referring to his audience as star stuff, which, uh, is intended to be a kind of uh, compliment in his, uh, you know, rhetoric. Your star stuff, and 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 what he's doing is he's he's freighting in a little bit of the old cosmology to give you a sense of your importance. Uh, but frogs and rocks are star stuff too. So if you're thoroughly a thoroughly consistent materialist, that's not a compliment at all. It just means that you're yeah. part of the stuff of the cosmos. You know, back in the New Age movement, when Shirley MacLaine was talking about how she was God, yeah. <laughs> if you follow through consistently on on the New Age movement, pond scum is too. That's right. That's right. <laughs> right. Well, that's you know, the, it's the same. It's the same thing. They're making the same fundamental mistake. Yeah. 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 So anyway, so yeah. I, you know, I, I, I think it's the the use of the of the image of a of a shattered image is good. It's I think it actually is right. That's where we are. Well, and, and, and in that world you have, sorry, sorry, Glenn, I didn't want to cut no, you go, off, but, go ahead. but in that world, you, you're right, Chris. I mean, matter was like the least common 
it, it was the least feature. You know, it was almost non non being. You know, it, it almost had nothing to it. Where the flip side, uh, I heard someone recently talk about. Um, you have basically a, a inverted Neoplatonism going on in the modern world, where where the Neoplatonists would reduce everything to spirit, right? Because every everything material was kind of a, a, a you know a move away from it. Now you have the flip side of that. Everything is reduced to matter, as if matter is the most real. And you know the the fact of creation, you know, um, and you know I could argue philosophically for it. I won't worry waste my time. But I mean, the fact that that the material is derivative and creaturely and dependent, and not the final reality from which to, re, to to relate everything else from, was a core insight of Christianity that it found congruous with kind of the ancient world, which is very foreign to what happens after this fragmentation, where you know material and the pure what you know that you often call pure nature that nature almost has a kind of being of in and of itself that isn't derivative starts to take shape and can therefore determine everything else but it is right at this time of fragmentation where that stuff starts to develop where nature starts to be considered almost as if it's self-grounded and you know uh self-justifying yeah i had the misfortune this morning of reading a bbc interview with daniel dennett i was doing it uh, uh i had to suffer through it so that i could you know glean some things for a book i'm working on <laughs> But, you know, in that interview, he talks about essentially, you know, the consciousness is, is illusory and he likens it to, you know, a, you know, a smartphone with a screen. And uh, the real the real stuff is the is the mechanical stuff that's going on beneath this smartphone surface. And then you have the image on the surface where his analogy breaks down. And I'm not sure he caught it or can catch it is if that's the way it actually works, who's looking at the screen? In other words, it, it, if my consciousness is epiphenomenal in the sense that he's described, what, you know, what the what, where does self consciousness come from? Uh, and I don't think that those guys yeah. have uh, anything that they can contribute. Yeah. Uh, if consciousness isn't first truth in some way in this sphere, you know what I mean, irreducible at some level, then it loses its capacity to be evaluative in any significant way. I mean, that's. That's it. Anyway, Glenn, we're probably, well, no, probably I, I, far from but, the historical but no, this, point. No, no, this actually it ties in perfectly <laughs> yeah. because this is this is really the heart of it. Uh, yeah. When we talk about the synthesis, that's one of the things yeah. that you know is being addressed here. It's how do yeah. we hold it all together? So is consciousness, or you know, that's just kind of a, a modern way or a pseudo scientific way to talk about spirit uh, or soulish or soul, um, you know, because those words have religious connotations that those folks don't want to freight into things but if, yeah. but if we're talking about consciousness you know uh is that the the true you or the illusion and if it's an illusion um well it's a pretty entertaining and delightful one it, it reminds me of puddle glum you know uh in the silver chair where he says this this the illusion that i remember is better than your realities <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the, the the thing that that's remarkable about this, and I'm going to reflect on the history a little bit rather than going right to the article, is that when when you look at the Renaissance, uh, I would argue that in a lot of ways the Renaissance is a product of the Black Death. Now there were already trends in that direction happening before then in some respects. But the core of the Renaissance really is something that we refer to as the cult of antiquity. The idea that the ancient world was all that in a bag of chips, you know, that that there's this golden age that was the Greco-Roman world, the Roman Empire, or the Roman Republic, depending on who you're talking to. And that was when the world was bright and all was right and life was merry and gay, if I can quote Camelot here. Um, <laughs> but... You know, the reason, and, and really, when you take a look at it, th there was a level of cultural despair about their own age that prompted that. And I would argue that when you're looking at, well, what, what happens in the 14th century? You'll notice the article talks about the, the 13th century, sort of the, the peak period here. What happens in the 14th century? You get a climate shift. The Little yeah. Ice Age begins. It gets colder yeah. and wetter. Growing seasons shorten. Famines occur. 
uh, 13, 16, 17, uh, it was referred to as the year without a summer because it was cold and wet the entire year and the grain couldn't ripen. For the first time, you've got famines across all of Europe. Uh, you've got outbreaks of disease culminating in, in the Black Death, which kills roughly half the population of Europe in the space of three years. Um, you, now, the church ought to be able to help with this, but in 1315, it got moved to Avignon, France. And, and you have and at then this in time, 1378, you get the, the schism in the West well, where you've got multiple and, popes. Yep, and you get nominalism, voluntarism, and its roots. I mean, you, you have the first fruits of SCOTUS, but eventually Occam, right mm. around this period in which the breakdown of, of you know, realism begins to happen, really the first time in Western history. Yeah, well then add to that, you've got the Hundred Years' War going on between England and France. And if you take a look at, um, at well, let's say Florence, which many people sort of consider the capital of Renaissance Italy, between 1293 and 1434, Florence had 12 changes in a government. And by change of government, I mean new constitutions. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it was total chaos going on. And it's in that environment that this the guy named Petrarch comes along, he's a poet and yeah. a bunch of other things, yeah. and really initiates this thing called the cult of antiquity, where he's looking back to ancient Rome as this golden age, arguing yeah. that when Rome fell, basically civilization ended and there's nothing going on. And, you know, like I said, cultural despair, his own era had nothing to offer, all of these kinds of things. Um. And the idea was powerful enough. It resonated enough in Italy that it took off. And that's yeah. why the entire movement, notice I did, I said movement, not period. The entire movement is called the Renaissance, the rebirth. What's it a rebirth of? Civilization. You have ancient civilization. You have modern civilization. And in between, you have this blank space in the middle, which we call the Middle Ages. That's where the term comes from question there because it's just a gap in my own knowledge of that period but there is a retrieval of neoplatonism during mm -hmm. this period which is actually I, we often look at it negatively but actually in many ways is a very positive move mm -hmm. for the renaissance folks uh, can yeah. you maybe kind of spell out what the significance of that was well the reason it happened was because the ottoman turks were were busy conquering the byzantine empire and a lot of refugees fled from there to italy and yeah. then the result is you get this, this burst of, of um, Hellenistic studies. And in yeah. particular, a guy by the name of uh, Marsilio Ficino finally translates all of the remaining works of Plato that survive into Latin, all, along with a whole bunch of other things. And so you get this burst of Neoplatonic uh, thinking um, uh, in Florence. Now, that's not the only trend. You, you've yeah. got uh, Pompanazzi, who's a Renaissance Aristotelian. But we usually associate the Neoplatonic movement with the Renaissance because of Ficino, who was the premier public intellectual of his day, if you can use that kind of term. This is, I think, worth noting that, uh, you know, generally speaking, when we think about the history of ideas, we have a tendency to consider them almost like hermetically sealed from history. <laughs> In other words, yeah. the ideas just kind of naturally unfold or, and new things kind of come up uh, that are introduced from who knows where or what, other, what source or what, what have you. But, you know, the point that the Black Death plays a huge role in all this is, is something that an historian would, would remind those of us who are more interested in the ideas <laughs> than in the yeah. sort of the occasion for a loss of faith in an old idea. I think it happens all the time, you know, when you got, yeah. like when I think about it, you know, I, so one of the things about antiquity is, um, you know, it's a fairly naive thing to, to, to think about the classical world in sort of this monolithic sense that it was just all great and that there weren't f fractures and, and things that are going on inside it. You know, when the, one of the reasons why the, why Christianity succeeded so remarkably is that there is a lot of disillusionment <laughs> among the Roman population. <laughs> In other words, yeah. they, they were they weren't enamored with their own. They were They were worrying about the end of the world themselves all the time. They thought their best days were all behind them. They they <laughs> had this sort of romantic sort of sense of of what. Roman virtue used to mean, you know, and they were always worried. I was just, I was just listening to an interview with, with, uh, 
Tom, um, oh, the guy who wrote Dominion, Tom Holland. Holland. And, yeah, he, he was talking about this. He was saying, you know, you know, in the first and second centuries, these people weren't thinking of themselves as the zenith of human civilization. They were thinking about yeah. our best days are behind us. They're, yeah. <laughs> they were, they were yeah. worried about all kinds of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let, let's, let, let's add this into the, into the mix here. The epistemology actually also, to some extent, in the Middle Ages, but carried to its, its illogical conclusions in the Renaissance, is that truth starts with truth is knowable to the human mind, mm -hmm. true truth, absolute truth. Secondly, truth is necessary for society because any society that's not built on truth is built on a lie and it will therefore collapse. Yeah. And the corollary to those two premises is that the your best guide to truth is ancient successful civilizations because obviously they must have known something. Yeah. Um, we'll add to that, by the way, a concept called the decay of nature, which says that in the natural world, everything has a tendency to, well, decay, to break down. Yeah. And since human beings and human civilization exists as part of the natural world, that's true of us too. So all civilizations tend toward entropy. All knowledge tends toward entropy. And therefore, the further back you can go in time, the purer your thought, your ideas will be. If you want to find the truth of anything, you go back to the very earliest sources you can find before the decay of nature came along and corrupted it. Mm -hmm. So this is why you've got the cult of antiquity. You want right. to go to the past. You want to find the earliest sources. You want to look at all kinds of ancient civilizations because they all must have known truth. And since truth is, is a unitary thing, they all must have the same truth and therefore, our job is to study all of them and to distill the, the essence of truth from all of them in a kind of synthesis, which yeah. we see in someone like Pico della Mirandola's, what is it, 500 Theses? Yeah. Um, where he's trying to synthesize truth from all over the world. The problem is it doesn't work. The medievals yeah. had figured this out, even with their much more limited sources. With the Renaissance, their obsession with the past means they go on this manuscript hunting spree. They uncover all kinds of ancient sources that had been forgotten, which is great. Yeah. But then they ma they're making the assumption that all of them agree with each other. And that's where yeah. the problem comes in. Now, the, well, the medievals yeah. could have told them it wouldn't work. But yeah, well, you, you have you have a host of things going on here. I mean, I know Alistair McIntyre, uh, the, the famous... Uh, ethicist uh was, was known for uh, i remember reinhardt hooder asking him something about you know philosophical or theological ethical issue and he said well you have to go back to where it broke down so that mindset is definitely still around um and and i think that you know the way like the reformation gathered you know hit uh, you know in its early days the way that that um, being a part of a tradition works but also its limit was very wise in the sense that it recognized that it was in, you know, it was it was a fallible means, but it was a necessary one as well. So you have a wellspring that, for, you know, like take take a concept of justice, right? You don't get a hold of what justice means apart from uh, a tradition that reflects on it, embodies it, practices it, brings it to light. But on the flip side, that doesn't make it infallible. That just returning to an earlier time somehow, you know, is able to gather a pure form. Um, but what it did mean is you can't extract yourself from that tr tradition of reflection and shaping and embodiment that make you a part of the conversation, all the while recognizing that you haven't achieved a pure form. This was a very this is one of the things I think the Reformation brought that is, you know, largely unrecognized, even with the Reformation people, um, that it recognized a, 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 a honoring of tradition, a shaping of it, a necessity for it without making it absolute. And I think sometimes what you're hinting at is that even the Renaissance had the temptation of thinking if you could retrieve something, you got a hold of a pure form versus the Reformation that said, no, you didn't get rid of a pure form, but you got you got a hold of a form that needs to, uh, you know, bring itself to fulfillment in redemptive history. Well, I think there, there, 
another thing to consider in all of this is, you know, we've got this sort of antiquarian naivete. Uh, in the 17th century, that changes, uh, you know, with uh, Novum Organum, uh, you know, and Francis Bacon, you know, the new knowledge, this is sense of turning away from Aristotle, a sense of kind of we've exhausted the, the riches of antiquity. Now there's a whole different approach. And now, now the, the myth of progress replaces, you know, the myth of the pure uh, and um, unified knowledge of the past. Yeah. The myth of progress waits a little bit past Bacon, actually, to Pascal. Mm. Um, and this was one of the unintended consequences of Pascal. Um, there was a debate going on between Descartes on the one hand and Gassendi on the other about whether or not vacuums existed. <laughs> now, they they knew about barometers. And they the big question is, uh, what is at the top of the barometer? You know, when the when you know you, the tube is filled with liquid, you invert it, you put it into a bowl, the same liquid, liquid you let go, and the liquid drops, and there's this gap at the top. What's in the gap? Um, Descartes said, "Well, matter is simply anything that takes up space. Technically, matter is extension, but basically, anything that takes up space is matter. So it's got to be matter." Gassendi says, "No, it's a vacuum." Okay. Pascal comes along and says, all right, well, let's do an experiment. And he takes a barometer and he measures the reading of it at the bottom of a mountain, takes it on a cart up to the top of the mountain, notes that the barometer has fallen, brings it back down, notes that it goes back up. And he says, okay, the most probable explanation of this is that it's a vacuum because this is exactly what Cassendi would predict Descartes has to jump through all kinds of hoops and, and kludges in order to explain where the matter comes from that fills this and where it disappears to. This doesn't prove that a vacuum exists, but it makes Gassendi's postulate of vacuums much more probable. Remember, Pascal in mathematics is also the father of probability theory. It makes it much more probable that this is the case, and that's good enough probability rather than certainty is adequate as a foundation for knowledge. This is called probabilism. And once you get probabilism, that's what really lays the groundwork for the idea of progress. Because what it means is we can respect the past all we want to, but in all likelihood, we're going to be learning more and adding more to it and improving and improving and improving and thus getting better and better and better. One of the, the questionable aspects of it has been always that you know have we always gotten better and better and better at it and that that part of it i think has has required the the layers of causality that were excluded when this stuff took off especially efficient causality which became became dominant i don't want to unpack that too much but really looking at the you know sort of the immediate uh, physical cause of something, right, has become almost explanatory in the fullest sense in modern science, leaving out formal cause, final cause, meaning that things have a form and pattern to them and that these unfold according to a given end, uh, purpose, meaning. Um, when those have been bracketed out, we've, ru we've run into a lot of problems of either projecting onto reality certain... Uh, you know, ends and purposes, or just uh, reducing them to function and therefore eliminating aspects that a richer vision from earlier times would have included within, within a scientific picture of things. So I think this has been a large um, criticism of where things ended up. And I think you're, I mean, I, I just listened to a lecture today by two Eastern Orthodox, you know, having conversation with a Buddhist uh, astrophysicist. And they were actually arguing the same thing we've been talking about a long time, the way that you bracket out formal and final cause from the picture of things. Um, you end up highly reducing the scientific picture of things that I think would have been in the best interest of even Renaissance thinkers and and uh, Western science had it not had an antenna for it. Bacon didn't have any interest in, in for, uh, final causality, and Descartes 
loathe the idea, but he qualified it under humility that we can't know God's intentions of things, therefore we can't include them in our, our, our scientific knowledge. Yeah, one of the things that scientists generally, in my experience, especially the secular versions, seem to forget is that science is really good at, at discussing what happens, but the question of why is a different thing. Why yeah. and what, why it happens and what happens are two different things. Yeah. And they're really good at the what side of it, but the why question is the final cause. Yeah. And they, they're just, the, the, the science is completely inadequate for that. Now, it is worth noting that the, um, one of the effects of the Renaissance uh, desire to go back into antiquity is they discovered what they believed was an ancient Egyptian source mm -hmm. uh, by Hermes Triskamistus, um, which would be the earliest source on religion and therefore the most pure and true source of religion, which influenced Moses and others. Um, and this is known as the Hermetic tradition, and it's a source of Renaissance magic theory. Hmm. Um, the Renaissance firmly believed that magic uh, made the world go round, as it were. Um, there, there were hidden occult forces in nature that made everything happen. Action at distance, all these things. I don't want to get into the weeds there. Well, but, but what you're talking about there is a higher level of causality. It, it isn't mm -hmm. really mis as mysterious as we want to make it out to be. We often think of magic as some sort of kind of intrusion into a kind of natural order of things. But here we're just talking about a porousness of reality that is open to a level of causality that hitherto mm -hmm. was not. You know, it was not right. suspicious. You know, the, the earlier times were, weren't as suspicious as we are of that level of causality. Yeah, it, it needs to be said that when we're talking in, in these terms, what we're dealing with is what's, what's technically called natural magic. It's yeah. not demonic or anything like that. It's part of no. the natural world that God created yeah. that the magus can understand and manipulate. Okay, yeah. You know, so that, that's really what it comes down to here. It's, it's not anything, they didn't think of it in any way as, as connected to the demonic, except maybe how did you get your secret knowledge, you know, <laughs> the, of these occult forces. But, but the reason why I bring that up is I've said before, I think on the program, that, that the, the Renaissance is the golden age of magic theory. And it is, in, it, science develops in reaction to that as they're trying to get away from these occult forces and reduce everything to, well, actually, originally mechanical causation. That's really the impetus for, to, for science. It's to get rid of all these occult forces and things like that. Yeah. Now, th where this goes ultimately is a rejection of natural philosophy. And again, with Kemper Crabb, we talked a bit about that, the rejection of natural philosophy, mm -hmm. arguably, according to John Milbank, set our understanding of the world back 300 years by just yeah. trying to reduce it to efficient causality. Yeah. Yeah. What we find, though, uh, with particle physics is stuff that is kind of spooky action at a distance and we're not really able to... Right. To Gravity, to sort of, too. Yeah, that's Magnetism, right. Magnetism. All of these things are really action at a distance. Well, and also, you know, when we think about Aristotle's originally original insight or thought that... Um, you know, there's always some kind of third thing that's kind of involved in any kind of causality. Um, the the thing that's acted on, the thing that does the acting is sort of the medium upon which. And that's kind of sort of the framework within which the idea that vacuum is impossible yeah. uh, is developed. Yeah. Uh, but in a strange way, I wonder if we're discovering that there really isn't a vacuum. <laughs> Do you get my, get, yeah, there's a, there's an absence of air uh, in in the top of the tube, <laughs> but yeah. is is there really a vacuum when uh, gravity waves can be felt over billions of light years? You know, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. so in other words, there is a kind of you know maybe liquid you could call it uh, that we are suspended in. Call, call it what they used to call it, an ether. Yeah, well, that, yeah. that's well, it, yeah. Yeah, well, I think Aristotle, Plato, 
Um, you know, we can, we can shake ourselves all we want out of that stuff, but Christianity wisely understood what was significant in both of those traditions. Um, they recognized that it was kind of a, uh, a ground-up and a top-down connection. And that, that is something that is being recognized in science today. That was something that would have been left out of the naturalist mechanical visions um, and what do you mean by that? Well, there is a communicative dimension in material reality that for any potential to actualize itself, there has to be communicative dimensions going on. This is where the bottom up, top down kind of connect, the transcendent and the imminent, if you will, um, that, that have to be in place for anything to, to realize itself. There are so many thick layers of reality that have to be going on for anything to be living and flourish, um, that the mechanistic and natural sciences can in no way account for. It's completely bracketed out of efficient causality. And so you, you, you see a lot of philosophy, you know, the, the return to natural philosophy. I think Milbank is tapping into that. This is happening, I think, even in the sciences, that we can't deal with this in our reductionistic pictures, um, and so we, 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 you know, the classic figures are back at it again as central stage. Um, and, you know, if you want to say it, it's kind of a renaissance in its own way. Um, and, you know, we have to think as Reformation people, what does this renaissance mean where we're not reactive in the wrong way to it, but actually receptive to it in, in a, I guess, a fuller Christian vision that can incorporate its positives without being re reducing it to you know, another kind of naturalism or humanism. Well, this is maybe where, you know, uh, Reynolds' reflections on Aquinas are relevant. So what made Aquinas great? Well, it was his attempt to bring it all together. Um, we don't really have anybody, as far as I could see, that has that in sort of the, in mind, um, Unless, uh, unless you know Albertus somebody. Magnus and a few others were trying Summa. Uh, Aquinas was the most successful. Yeah, but I guess I'm thinking about today, oh, just okay. in, in terms of our our setting. You know, there there's a whole lot more to try to incorporate uh, the vast, and then it's growing all the time. Um, so it's almost as though we're condemned to this fragmentary uh, setting setting that we find ourselves in. Uh, because there's nobody out there who just knows enough. I mean, occasionally you come yeah. across, a, you know, a guy like John Polkinghorne or somebody, you know, who's like uh, an authority in, you know, physics and try, theology. Try to incorporate. Yeah, they're trying to incorporate. And, I, you know, I, I, hats off to all those people. I, I get it. You know, whatever their limits, I get what they're trying to integrate. But it's interesting, Glenn, because you're talking about a time at which, well, well think, a, think a little later historically, at which, on the one hand, you have holding it all together, this fragmentation that's happening, especially with nominalism and voluntarism. I don't mean to be generic about those, but those had an impact, whatever you say about them. And retrieval or, or renewal that you have going on in Renaissance and Reformation. But Reformation's focus is soteriological. What is the Renaissance focus? I mean, you're, you're a Renaissance guy. Um, why did they take that turn? And how could you integrate that reformational concern with that Renaissance concern for a fuller picture that includes creation and redemption in a way, I think that would be similar to what we're up to now? Yeah, in, in the Renaissance, you, you've got the, the two things that are at the core of the Renaissance, and I'm not even going to mention art because art is a consequence of these. Yeah. Uh, one of them is the retrieval. It's, it's the, the cult of antiquity. But yeah. the other is Renaissance humanism. And when you use the word humanism, immediately people think they know what you're talking about and they're almost invariably wrong when the word yeah. Renaissance is in front of it. Yeah. Um, Renaissance humanism was actually a curriculum of studies. Yeah. In the Middle Ages, education was built around the seven liberal arts, okay, with a particular focus on dialectic, uh, which is essentially logic. Yeah. In the Renaissance, one of the things Petrarch does, it's part of his retrieval, he goes back to old Roman education. 
And what he discovers in Roman education is that the focus is not on logic, it's on rhetoric, which is necessary because Roman education, formal education was for the senatorial classes, and they had to be able to convince their fellow senators to vote the way they wanted them to. So rhetoric was the, was the pinnacle of education. It's why Augustine was, an, was a yes. rhetorician. That's right. Okay. So, um, so he redesigned education in what he considered a much more practical way around really four core subjects, uh, rhetoric, moral philosophy, history, and poetry, with rhetoric being the, the uh, pinnacle of this. So the focus on rhetoric there um, then has its effect on epistemology, whereas in the Middle Ages, epistemology was you give me a coherent argument, a logical argument, that's the best way to find truth. In the Renaissance, it becomes clarity. The things that, the the more clear something is, rhetorical focus, the more likely it is to be true. And there's actually debates about this going on in the 16th century that people like, if I'm not mistaken, if my memory serves, Melanchthon and others are participating in. So does that say something about modern literary theory and just how uh, difficult and uh, dense and uh, (laughs) unclear it is? (laughs) Dense is a good word for it. Um, Yeah, but, um, you know, so uh, both of those influence the Reformation. Yeah. So you get, on the one hand, you'll get, well, especially the reform tradition, but you'll get a new way of doing studies, that, uh, studying texts that come out of humanism. I would argue that justification by faith emerges when it does in the 16th century because they're looking at the Bible, asking traditional theological questions, how do you go to heaven, but answering it using the tools of the Renaissance. That's interesting because and, and can be problematic. <laughs> you know, you know why? Um, only because it it asks the question whether or not the church, because it didn't have the antenna of the Renaissance, has read the Bible throughout history, its doctrines of Trinity and incarnation and everything else the right way. I mean, this has been part of the argument of figures like Lewis Ayers that know the 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 significance of the hermeneutical framework that the creedal theologians worked with was significant to developing those theological axioms and if you try to move the to a different set of axioms you, you would not necessarily get the creedal interpretation of the bible yeah, and the the Reformation w- never really recovered the ancient church's way of looking at scripture. Yeah, but they did with their own their own approach to the text. They end up defending the traditional doctrines as well. That's interesting, and and I think that would be worth a uh, worth a book be- because in a sense that that's very hard to come by in other ways. Um, I think of uh, I'll give you an example carb. Karl Barth's retrieval of the doctrine of the Trinity. He affirms fully classic doctrine of the Trinity, but he does it fully on non-traditional grounds to which many question whether or not his interpretation is not, I mean, is far more consistent with a reading of the Trinity enlightened, say, a post-Kantian metaphysic than anything the classical Christian vision would affirm. And the problems therein of comparing the two become significant at a point. And, and it's a huge question for the church because it asks whether or not a certain frame is significant for our reading of the text, one that is more continuous with classic patterns of reading and more suspicious of alternatives, even if they come to the same conclusion, because you may be importing things not necessarily consistent with what what the church has held. So it it is a huge hermeneutical issue for Reformation people because the question is how how significant is that change of context to getting hold of a biblical text? Well, I yeah, say so. That, what what you see with Luther, for example, is Luther is going to argue that biblical texts, uh, unlike the fourfold reading of the Middle Ages, biblical texts only have one meaning. 
but your core hermeneutical principle is Christological or Christocentric. Um, it, it really, everything revolves around salvation through Christ. And thus, a per significant percentage of the Old Testament is properly read non-literally. You read it uh, allegorically, anagogically, whatever, as a way to point to Christ. The New Testament is mostly, well, what we would describe as literal. Yeah, but the but Old in, Testament in a way, Luther, Luther was just holding what the, you know, the, the incarnational center of the patristic church at that point. That, that so Luther he wasn't innovative. Yeah. yeah, Luther is the closest to holding to the patristic view. And actually, I, I, I like to remind people that Jesus gave two hermeneutical principles. The first of them is, love God, love your neighbor, all the law and the prophet hang on these two. Okay. The second is, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. And these are the things that talk about me. Me, yeah. So if you are not reading the Old Testament and yeah. seeing Jesus in it, you're reading it wrong according to Jesus. But see, if you the, disagree the, with that, take it up with him. So Chris, you had something you wanted to Well, yeah, that my thought had to do with how uh, the patristics, you know, the, the fathers of the church, they thought of themselves as being in touch with reality with a capital R. So this gets us back to Christological yeah. framework within which, because Christ is the Lagos, sort of the yeah. the hermeneutic of reality, uh, the Rosetta Stone of reality. Yeah. And so Luther, you know, uh, you know, with the, with the marvelous, I, I guess, coincidence, <laughs> is uh, taking an approach that maybe has the kind of the Renaissance humanist uh, uh, you know, sort of framework that he's he's operating in, but just so happens to be tying it in to what the fathers would have done or did do. Uh, but I think that's the other thing about this is that um, if we're sticking to history and grammar and trying to bridge, uh, you know, the the centuries. Uh, then you know, got an enormous challenge of trying to justify your 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 thinking as being in in harmony with the the authors of the past because yeah. you're not talking about reality per se. You're talking about uh, a particular frame of mind at a particular time. And this is this is the wedge that postmodernism has driven. Uh, to its ultimate conclusion, which is we can't know anything about the past, really. We can only know the contents of our own heads. And that's because they don't really believe that our heads are tied into reality at all. Yeah. <laughs> that we're just well, kind of right. like our, our heads Our heads so somehow absolute, which they're not. They're creaturely, and so they're dependent like anything well, else. Well, that, but also yeah. the fact they, they don't believe in, in the Lagos at all. Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Other, other than just enough to justify that they're thinking in their own heads. Yeah, for example. Yeah, they, they have enough. <laughs> yeah, right enough now I'm reading, you know, uh, the Meditations, uh, Aurelius, yeah. and yeah. he just keeps appealing to the Lagos all over the place, yeah. uh, bringing your, you know, his, and he's talking to himself. That was one of the things that's interesting about the Meditations. Uh, there's a school of thought that that uh, understands them as as just sort of a personal notebook, he wasn't actually yeah. writing for publication. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah, he's trying to remind right. himself of things all the time, yeah. according to this way of looking at it. And he's trying to remind himself, you know, to get in touch with the Lagos, to, to not uh, lose sight of the Lagos and the meaning of reality. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, this was something that was a commonplace in the world that Christianity went into. And it is a huge loss in in the West, and I guess the question is with the you know the article the fra you know the fragmenting of things, the splintering of things, how that gets either reduced to like you said the subjective, or uh, you know the you know projecting it onto reality um, versus the inherent nature of things grounded in the infinite source. Uh, one thing that all classical visions held is that these, you know, there was an inherent intelligibility in the nature of things grounded in the transcendent source that was the Logos. That was the pattern which patterned all of the intelligibility of creaturely 
derivative things. And so to understand anything is both to apprehend the intelligibility of the particular thing, but you could only do it in the light of the full thing that illumined it and gave it the fullest sense. Um, you know. Yeah, when I think about some of the valuable work of, say, the Reconstructionists or the Theonomists, it strikes me that they had a kind of an, an intuition, a sense that uh, the soteriological framework was too narrow that, uh, you know, many reformed people in the 19th century, 18th century were working in, and they were trying to recover something of the more uh, capacious, you know, uh, project of Christianity. But they were, but they were already so cut off from the, from some of these things that we're talking about, that they were just kind of filling in the blanks, but yeah. they were still using kind of Renaissance uh, you know, sort of uh, assumptions, you know. Uh, still operating out of a shattered image, picking right. up yeah. secrets right. of the image, but not having the whole. Yeah. yeah. So I think we can give them like partial credit. We can say, hey, you guys, your instincts were right. You know, we're talking about reality with a capital R. We're talking about the whole picture, not just getting my soul into heaven. To me, that's what the Reconstructionists yeah. and the Theonomists mm -hmm. got right. They said, you know, we're too narrow. We need to broaden out. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. And that, that comes from a puritanical, ultimately a puritanical turn, which requires a revisitation of a kind of wider vision. Um, I mean, you know, others that didn't take that puritanical turn would have held to that wider vision earlier on, but both, neither of them were able to realize it. So they're both kind of in the same, you know, they're in the same boat, <laughs> if you will, um, you know, because things completely went a different way. But it is interesting how, you know, I, you know I've been reading um, Thomas Pfau, who's a, a fascinating, uh, he teaches, I think, English literature at Duke, but he is very well versed in kind of, you know, the shifts in, in culture. And he was just talking about how the erasure of memory, even for Christians, is just so profound that, that the things that were commonplace have become so. You know, this 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 problem. Maybe maybe what we need to do is just have a lot of stress on recovering just the discipline of history. I I saw something here that just <laughs> blew my mind. Somebody posted uh, apparently uh, you know some data from Google. There are a lot of people out there now searching uh, the the subject of you know uh, Oppenheimer. And whether the bomb that he creates is actual historical fact, <laughs> and, and whether it and whether it matters, yeah. I mean, but but the point is, I just, I, it's just unbelievable to me to me that there are people alive today who aren't aware that there are nuclear weapons, yeah, uh, all it, over the world. Well, it makes me. There, there are a lot of people who weren't alive or aware of of anything during the Cold War when we lived with nuclear weapons <laughs> as sort of on the back of our mind well, all the time. Yeah. Well, it makes me, I think for both of you, makes me, you know, especially for my own children, it makes me aware of the need for resources to give them in curriculum prior to their well, I, you, launching. You, you know that they all know who, uh, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was. And well, they know, right. they know yeah. uh, all about... Yeah. But, but wrong, but read wrongly. But, but yeah. then they know all about <laughs> sexual politics and stuff like that, but yeah. they don't know anything That's right. about yeah. World War II or, or anything, yeah. you know, related yeah. to the Cold War. They're just completely ignorant. Vast well, swaths of thing, you know, history. You, you will yeah. also find people, I just saw this yesterday, um, there are people who argue that, you know, in light of the bomb, Basically, what they're saying is that the bomb was an example of white supremacy <laughs> and that, in fact, the United States was every bit as bad as the Nazis or the Japanese in China or anything like that during the period, yeah. that, that we were just as evil as Hitler. Yeah. 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 The, the moral, this the moral is, yeah, well, the, the moral measure has been, you know, again, eradicated so that, it, you know, the, these kind of false equivalences have been made equivalent, you know, they, they've been made to look like they're the same thing. And like you said, you don't have to, you don't have to agree 
and have a purist interpretation of things to recognize qualitative differences, you know. Um, but nevertheless, it, it, you know, the, the incapacity of people to reason with nuance is just incredible. It, it's incredible. I mean, the stuff I worked hard to train myself to get into good schools, to be able to articulate a good argument, is completely gone. In, in the university, it's a matter of hitting, like you said, these highlight points. If, you know, if you affirm this, this has to be bad. There's no measure of what bad is. There's no care to establish a measure of good and bad. It's just to assert that whatever my elitist group has defined as bad, I need to basically, you know, ascribe to as bad. Um, there's a deferral to... A certain kind of popular class is what Chris is on to all the time, that there is a kind of elite class that defines right and wrong, good or bad, rational and irrational, and no one has to do any thinking. We just need to conform to it if we want to be in the in club and somehow be cool, you know? And this notion of being cool and in the in club is far more pressing than the beatific vision or any higher... Um, uh, you know, uh, any higher life that the gospel calls us to. And so you, I, I know people that have gone to churches in Hartford that were evangelical, so-called. They met in schools. I'm not condemning that. But the people that hug trees and worship nature now and their kids are basically in transition is astronomical. And these were so-called evangelical conservative, you know, uh, Rick Warren-type churches. Why? Yeah, well, I think we've been kind of touching in, you know, touching <laughs> that a bit. Uh, yeah. Getting, you know, uh, getting back to the framework in which, we, you know, we're, we're conducting this conversation, the this uh, discarded image um, and shattered image, anything you want to, kind of focus in on as we bring this uh, to an end here, this conversation there, Glenn? With about three minutes remaining, I don't <laughs> think there's much that I can can point to. Um, I had thought we might get through some of the individuals here, although, and we did at least mention Aquinas. Yeah, sure. <laughs> right. But, um, yeah, there, there, uh, the article is worth reading. Uh, we'll, we'll, of course, post the link to it, even though we didn't really discuss the details of it much. Um it's worth reading because it highlights a lot of individuals that, frankly, a lot of them are people that most of our or many of our listeners, I suspect, won't have heard of. Yeah. Uh, but but they're worth they're important people. They're worth knowing about. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Robert Grosstest, uh, Roger Bacon, mm -hmm. you know, people like that. I should note, by the way, um, I, I always have to comment. Uh, Grosstest is. Um, Rather unfortunate name. It can be translated to fathead, um, but but the the guy the guy was genuinely brilliant. He's the first person who, who in the Middle Ages who showed that he really got Aristotle's methodology. He laid out a form of scientific method. Uh, he believed in the importance of math as sort of the language of nature, and then Roger Bacon picks up on all of this and runs with it, um, and does absolutely amazing things. Um, in terms of both his theory and his own work. I mean, he identifies, he, prior to Newton, he broke up visible light into a spectrum using a water droplet. Okay. Yeah. You know, I mean, he, he does all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah. Uh, so much so that there used to be uh, fantasy books that, that had him as either a wizard or a time traveler. <laughs> I mean, because it, uh, the, the guy is, well, he, he, he's pretty much a, an incredible genius. Also very important, by the way, in advocating the use of not only direct observation of nature, but direct observation of God's other book, Scripture. Yeah. In the original languages. Well, this he's arguing a, this in the early 12th century. This would be a great yeah. uh, topic, um, you know, the contrast between Roger and Francis Bacon and you yes. know, what distinguished those two. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we've got to the place where we can kind of bring it in for landing, as we like to say. And uh, we appreciate Speaking of bringing it in for a landing, bacon anticipated flying machines. <laughs> <laughs> well, another reason why we need to do a show on him. But uh, thanks for listening to the Theology Podcast and getting to the end of this show. Um, just so you know, uh, we do appreciate your support. 
and there are different ways to support us. One is to just give us a good rating on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to the show. And, and the last time I mentioned that, uh, it resulted in some people doing that. And so please to continue to do that. It helps. Uh, our audience uh, is large enough that we should have a thousand, I'm not exaggerating, a thousand ratings, but we're, you know, just in the mid 300s. And it'd be great if folks uh, took us uh, to another level in terms of the ratings, because it does make a difference when people are searching for, say, I want to listen to a, a podcast on theology. Uh, the ones that have the highest ratings are the ones that show up first. So, you know, at this point, uh, you know, you have to kind of scroll a while before you find us. We'd love to be able to move up that scale. Since we have about, we estimate 10,000 listeners uh, across all platforms, um, I think it's feasible that we could get up to 1,000. Another way to support us is through our Patreon. And uh, in fact, we're getting ready to record a little ex Patreon exclusive. So there are uh, little perks to being part of the Patreon community. You get to actually listen to uh, a show before it's available for everyone else to listen to. And uh, you do get to ask us some questions directly on that platform. And we would appreciate more people becoming patrons. It helps us pay the bills. Anyway, thanks a lot for your time. And we'll catch you next time, next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy the book by Jason Cherry, The Making of Evangelical Spirituality, available on Amazon. <laughs>